Uh, take your copies of God's Word this morning. Instead of turning to the Gospel of Mark, turn to the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter, uh, well, turn to chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Let us give attention to God's Word this morning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Or the angels... He says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. Um, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And they... Uh, excuse me, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word that you have given to us this morning. And God, we are a people that, that, that need to hear these things over and over and over and over again. But God, just to hear does not necessarily mean we have received by faith. And so we pray for your work in our hearts. God, that we might understand these things and take them to heart. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to, to make these things that we consider today uh, a reality, a part of our lives to see what you are doing in the hearts of your people. Lord, and even for those who do not know you, that they might know the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. 
Well, on October 31st, 1517, many of you know that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, which sparked the Protestant Reformation. And today we celebrate 500, the 504th anniversary of this great event. But Martin Luther's actions are more than to be celebrated. They are to be remembered because of much of what he did is who we are as the Christian church today. And, and I'm going to be talking about Luther today, but it, it's not just Luther. We know that the Lord used many men uh, across, uh, across the time in many different geographical locations to bring reformation to his church. And, and, they, and so we give thanks to God for those servants that he used to bring about his purpose. But it wasn't that these men were so much wanting to change the church in terms of taking it in a different direction other than it had the church had ever gone. It's just simply that they wanted the church to return to what the scriptures had taught. You see, by the middle or late middle ages... Christianity had become very formal, very external, very outward. In, in other words, it was simply about people doing certain things, maybe about what they believed as well, but also about what they did. So very, so very often there was no sense of a, of a personal commitment to Christ or a personal application of the gospel to one's life, living out of the benefits that we see in Christ. And so if you were religious, you would behave in certain ways and do certain things. You would attend Mass. You would participate in the sacraments. You would pray certain ways. You would give financially to the church. Christianity was defined largely in terms of what you did. There was very little sense of the dynamic of something that was transforming, something to take a hold of your life and change you from the inside out. So there arose a whole generation of churchgoers who really didn't understand the gospel and what it was all about. And that's why one of the great themes of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. You know, it was answering the question that the jailer in our passage this morning asked, what must I do to be saved? Because you see, by the early 16th century, people were being told, well, give money to the church and sins will be forgiven. And that was one of the struggles that Martin Luther had and what that he included in his 95 Theses that he wanted to talk about was the giving of indulgences. You see, by this time, the church had drifted far away from the biblical faith. And it didn't happen over time, and it happened slowly. It, you know, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It, it happened very slowly. But I think we need to understand, and, and just to be fair to the church in that day and time in the Middle Ages, to understand that this tendency to drift is not something that's unique only to the Middle Ages church. It's something that God's people have always wrestled with. And if you don't believe me, you can just go back and read the Old Testament and look at the Israelites and, and, and God, how he gave his law to his people. He told them very specifically what to do. And, and if I might use New Testament language to describe an Old Testament situation, he told them to be in the world, but not of the world. And yet they mingled with their neighbors and they worshiped their gods and they sacrificed their children to these false gods. They strayed, they drifted from the faith. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. Even while the apostles were alive and, 
and preaching the gospel faithfully within the church. We know that there were those who came in and led people astray with false teaching. There were Judaizers who said, yes, believe in Jesus Christ by faith, but also be circumcised. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand that this temptation to drift is no less an issue for the church today. Um, no less church today. You know, I think oftentimes when people think of uh, the Reformation, they think of the five solas. And probably some of you came this morning thinking, I'm going to hear a sermon on the five solas. I mean, it's just that much at the forefront of our mind. Sola Scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solo Christo, sola, sola Deo Gloria. And these are wonderful doctrines of the church. And these are things that we have talked about in the past. But today, I want us to think about the church's propensity to drift. Because we see even in many churches in our own country the neglect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, they may preach some form of the gospel, but sort of mixed in with that is, is human devices and human methods to seek to try to accomplish what the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit can do. And brothers and sisters, I want us to understand that Kirk of the Plains is not exempt from this temptation. And so I want us to think about these things as we consider our church this morning. I want you to think about these things this morning as you consider your own walk with the Lord in your Christian life. And so look this morning with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 2. We're only going to cover verses 1 through 4. We're not, but chapter 1 was just to give you the context of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I want us to see if we're to guard against drifting, the first thing we must do is to acknowledge our tendency to drift away from the faith. So our first point is the danger of drifting away. The danger of drifting away. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The Greek word here that's used is, is a nautical term. Kids, you know what that means, a nautical term? It means it's a term that was used around, you know, by sailors and people that operated ships and things like that. Okay, and it described a ship that had drifted off course. Okay, it was set to go one place, but maybe it got a few degrees off. Or it was a ship in a harbor that had come untied, and therefore it had sort of uh, drifted uh, out to sea. Or maybe it was anchored in the harbor, and that anchor had come loose, and it began to drift out to the sea. Th this word is used in other contexts as well to maybe describe a ring that slips off of someone's finger or something that slips from our minds, you know, forgetting what we knew or forgetting something that we had heard. But one of the key ideas here with this word is this drifting away is something that happens largely unnoticed. And while it's happening, the changes are almost unperceptible. Only later do its consequences become clear. And, and it sort of reminds me, uh, when I was younger, I loved to go to my uncle's pond and fish. You know, he had this 10-acre pond. It was huge. And I loved to be in a boat in the middle of that pond with maybe some friends or cousins, and we'd be fishing. And then after we'd been fishing for a while, we'd just set our poles down, and we'd lay down in the boat and look up at the sky. We couldn't see anything around us. All we could see was the sky. We'd pull up the anchor and just sort of drift, and we'd talk. And it just seemed like it was just a few minutes had gone by. 
And looking up at the sky, it didn't look like we really had moved much or anything. But when we sat up in the boat, what we thought was a few minutes later, we would find ourselves, we were right against the bank, right against the shore. We had drifted halfway across that pond without even knowing it. And that's sort of the idea uh, that we see here this morning. You know, this idea that the author is alerting his readers to, sharing with them this grave danger of drifting against which all Christians must not only be aware, but we must seek to respond to with careful attention. You see, the, the, the writer to the book of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians. These are people who had come out of Judaism, but because they had come out of Judaism, they had suffered persecution for their faith. And if, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, I'm not going to read these passages, but Hebrews 10 verses 32 through 34, uh, you'll see that when these Christians had come to faith in Christ, they had endured great difficulty. It says, when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes they were publicly exposed uh, to reproach and afflictions. Sometimes they were put in prison. Some of the Christians had their property taken away from them. And if it didn't happen to them personally, the writer of Hebrews tells us, you at least walked with those who went through all these things. And so you suffered along with them. So these are not Christians who just at the first sign of persecution were tempted to cave and, and to go back to, you know, Judaism. They have suffered much, and so they were tempted to return to Judaism. But, but, but persecution is just one circumstance that might cause us to, be, uh, to, to drift from our faith. Um, false teaching is another that might uh, be something that might lead us away from the true Christian faith. And these Christians struggled with that as well. I mean, here they had been raised... In the temple, and they saw the priests and the sacrifices and all that went along with that. And they were tempted to think that Jesus Christ was something different. But the writer to the Hebrews was trying to explain to them, actually, he is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He is the sacrifice. He is the high priest. And so he was laying all that out before them. And of course, it's not just persecution and, and false teaching that might tempt Christians to, to drift away from the faith, but also sin and compromise with the world. And so the book of Hebrews is notable for confronting us with the reality of apostasy, that, that drifting. Now, I could just hear, hear some of you, what you're thinking this morning already. I can't read your mind, but if I could, I'm sure somebody out there would be saying, no wait, Pastor Rick, are you saying that we can lose our salvation? And, and to be sure, the Bible teaches the eternal security of all true believers in Jesus Christ. That, that's true. I'm not going to go through a lot of texts that talk about that. Let me just read one to you. And these are the words of Jesus himself. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so it is true that we have that security for those that are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it is also true that not all who profess a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are true believers. And, and we see that um, throughout Scripture. We see a number of examples. And probably the most infamous example is Judas Iscariot. You know, he walked with Jesus for three years. Apparently, the other disciples never suspected that he was a, a fraud until he had betrayed the Lord Jesus. 
Um, another example would be one of Paul's companions, Demas. Uh, at the end of Colossians and Philemon, Paul adds Demas's name to the list of close companions of co-workers for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul looked at him, and as he could see from his life, he, he would say he was a believer. But by the time of the end of Paul's ministry, by the time we come to 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verse 10, we read these sobering words. Paul writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. In other words, he's deserted the faith. He, he's been ensnared by the, the allure of the world and no longer walking with the Lord. So here's the case of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and also a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. If they can fall away, we can too. And so while we are secure through faith in Jesus, um, you know, we're a lot like a, a good tree. A true faith is revealed by a person's fruit. It doesn't matter whether a person considers themselves to be a believer or not. What counts is the fruit of their lives. Is there evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life? And if there is, you'll see the things that, that Paul lists in Galatians 5 when he lists the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why we also read things like from Peter in 2 Peter 1.10. Peter says, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. We must therefore persevere and use the resources God gives us to bear fruit and thus not drift away. And so we need to be, we need to be mindful, brothers and sisters, of this temptation to drift. You know, I think it's so easy for Christians just to say, yeah, I'm a Christian or I'm not a Christian, and not to look at the nuances of that sense of drifting. But the writer to the Hebrews was mindful of this drifting. And so he gives us the, our second point, and that's the accompanying command to pay attention. Pay attention. He says in the first part of verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You see, the author understands that while there is a danger in the Christian life of drifting, there's also a remedy. Now, here again, kids, the Greek word for pay attention, it's a, it's a nautical term. It, it has to do with ships and stuff, right? And it was used to mean to hold the course, like a captain would, would make sure that his boat stayed on course or who secured the anchor. So to avoid drifting off course, uh, the captain would hold the wheel of the ship in a certain way, in a certain place, so that he could make sure that he stayed straight. Or to avoid slipping out with the current, you had to make sure that your anchor was firmly fastened upon something solid. You see, drifting away happens without any effort whatsoever on our part. But staying the course is quite the opposite. It requires constant diligence on the part of the believer. C.S. Lewis uh, was very perceptive when, when he wrote these words. He says, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe, right? Is that true of anybody else here? We have to constantly be reminded of what we believe. He said, neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in your mind. It must be fed. 
Right? We have to constantly be reminded. I cannot tell you the number of times when I have been tempted to worry over our personal finances or about some circumstance, and my wife, who is a very godly, much godlier than I am, godly woman who loves the Lord, she will just very gently say, Rick, but the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, I know that. I teach that. I preach that. I tell people that in counseling. But you know, it just doesn't always stick in your mind when you need to know it. You know, we need to be reminded. It must be fed. C.S. Lewis goes on and he says, as, and as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. In other words, he goes, I wonder how many people left the Christian faith because they found another argument that was more persuasive. He said, no. He said, do not most people simply drift away? Don't they drift away? Now think about those you know who once were faithful uh, in attending church and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they no longer darken the doors of the church. They may still consider themselves Christian. Here again, it doesn't matter what we consider ourselves. It matters about the fruit, whether the spirits that work in our lives. But, but for these people, they no longer darken the door of the church and, and, and Christ really has no major part in their lives. For those people, when they departed, did they do so publicly coming out and saying, I have now heard, uh, I have some objection to the Christian faith. They can't be answered and therefore I'm leaving. Or did they just quietly disappear from the church, drifting away from Christ and his church, like an empty boat being cut loose from the dock and just silently drifting out to sea? drifting out into total darkness, never to be seen again. You see, brothers and sisters, in the matter of our belief, Christianity requires hard work. The New Testament describes the life of faith as a fight. It's a race. It's a field in which the farmer labors. And that's why Paul says in various places, I press on, I follow after, I strive, I fight. Now, lest you think I'm preaching a work salvation, that's not the case. We know from Philippians 2 that it is Christ who works in us to, to will and to wish to do these things, okay? But there cannot be a sense of passiveness on our part in terms of obedience. I know when it comes to our justification of, of our standing with God and being made right with God, there's no place for our works, you know? Uh, so faith is first essentially passive because we receive forgiveness of our sins only by Christ's work. We only receive that which Christ has done and rest upon Christ's saving actions on our behalf. But when it comes to living out our salvation, our sanctification, our faith is to be extremely active. And it's God who works in us to make that possible. I love what J.C. Ryle says in his book, Holiness. He says, I will never shrink from declaring that spiritual gains don't come without spiritual pains, right? We always say that. You know, no pain, no gain. And that's what he's sort of saying. He says, spiritually, you will have no gains in the Christian walk if, if you don't have pains, if there's not efforts. He said, I would just as soon expect for a farmer to prosper who just puts his uh, seed in the ground and then forgets all about it and comes back at harvest. I would expect him to be more prosperous than I would a believer who thinks that he's going to be holy but never 
reads the Word of God, never prays, and never uses, takes advantage of the Lord's day. And so we are called here to pay attention. But what is it that we're to pay attention to? Well, look at what he says. To what we have heard. You see, the particular means of security and sanctification the writer of the Hebrews wants us to concentrate on is the gospel message. Or, or to put it more generally, God's saving revelation culminating in Jesus Christ. He wants us to think about the, the gospel message. I mean, if you look back at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. You see, this is the message of, about Christ and what he has, he has done. And it is that gospel message, it is the Word of God that is, if I could use the metaphor used in chapter 2, verse 1, it is the Word of God that is the anchor that secures our salvation. And it is that the Word of God that is the rudder that guides us safely to our destination. And that's a principle that we need to, to hear today, to understand that God has given us His revelation in the Word of God to keep us from drifting. You know, people are looking for power from God to change their lives and assure them of salvation. And, and many people are, are tired of the church and they say, oh, there is nothing there for me. And so they, they seek for other means outside uh, to, to try to find some kind of meaning with God. And yet many Christians seem to intend on using every method except the method that the Bible tells us about, the method that, that our passage today tells about, the diligent study and understanding of the Word of God. Many people seek to come close to God, but they want to do so through some kind of emotional experience. Or, or others want to go the other extreme and they want to come up with all these disciplines. And if I just do these things, if I just read my Bible every day, if I just pray for at least 15 minutes a day, if I just do just these certain things, then I will be assured of, of being more godly and being more secure in my relationship with God. But look at what the writer of Hebrews said. He said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, and that is the Word of God. That means we must remember and we must organize our thoughts around the Bible's message every day in our lives. We, we must meditate on it. We must dwell on it. One of the things I've done recently, which has just been, I sort of uh, did it by accident, I guess you could say from my perspective. I know from God's perspective it wasn't an accident. But every morning, I've uh, even before I have my time with the Lord, I, I have been spending time memorizing Scripture. And so I just spend time. First thing, well, I grab my coffee first thing. And then I sit down and I start just going over Bible verses. And just meditating on God's Word before I do anything else. And just informing my thinking and meditating upon who God is. And that has been such a blessing in my life and has been so good. You see, we need to remember humanity's fall and sin and the corruption that remains in us. You know, we, we may not think, brothers and sisters, as clearly about things in our lives as we think we do. I mean, how many of us think that our opinions on issues are wrong? Would you raise your hand? Right? We don't ever think that we're wrong about anything, okay? But we can be wrong and not even recognize that because of the deception of sin. And that's why 
We need to take advantage of the word that God has given to us. His wonderful blessing that lays out before us his character that we might see his faithfulness and his power and his wisdom and his love. We need to be told of his holiness over and over and the offense of our sin against him. We must look to the cross and see the great mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must, we must see even the sinfulness of our, our own hearts. We need to daily be having our identity grounded in Jesus Christ and that we are adopted as his sons. We must understand that in Christ's blood that was shed, that our sins have been forgiven. And we need to understand that in all of its implications for our daily lives. We need to understand that we are co-heirs with him, that we are saints that are called the glory, and yet at the same time we are pilgrims sojourning through an alien and a dying world. In other words, we need to pay much closer attention to the message of God's word. And that's a principle that Jesus emphasized even in John chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, 31, we read, these are Jesus' words, he said, if you abide in my word, do you hear what he says? If you abide in my word, not just if you read it, you know, not just if, if you think about it a little bit, if you abide, if you meditate, if you dig, if you study, as you, as, as, as you think about that, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I think it's interesting, brothers and sisters, that God gave us a book. Now I know a lot of us in the digital age are like, why did he give us a book? Why didn't he give us a podcast? Or why didn't he give us a movie? Or, or something else. But you know with a book, you have to sit down and you have to meditate. And you have to think about it. We could, we could just listen to a podcast and be done and say, okay, I did it. I'm done. We could walk away and we could forget it. But with his word, he wants us to meditate. He wants us to think about that. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he summed up this message very well when he said this. He goes, it is the word of God that can establish the Christian and give him strength to overcome the old forces and to live the new. He said it can never be done in any other way. Do you hear that? It can't be done in any other way. You will never grow in the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't take advantage of the grace of God's mercy that he has given to us in giving us his word, that we might spend time with him. You can't, he's, Barnhouse goes on to say, he says, you can't find even one Christian on this earth who has developed into strength of wisdom and witness in the Lord. In other words, you can't find one Christian in this world who is maturing in their faith enough that they're even sharing their faith with others who has attained it by any other means than study and meditation in the word of God. If we want to hold fast to Christ and advance in the faith and not drift, we must become people of the book, the Bible, giving careful attention to its message all the days of our lives. You see, as, as Christians, we experience stability as we give ourselves to making the Word of God the center of our lives. God has given us His wonderful grace in giving us the Word. But brothers and sisters, if we let it sit on the shelf, if we neglect it, we, we will never grow. But we must read it with the goal of seeking God to make us godly as we obey it, as the Spirit works in us. But brothers and sisters, if you're drifting, you have no such stability. You don't have an anchor to rock, to uh, uh, an anchor 
for your soul. You don't have a rock to attach to. You know, I often find that those who are drifting have an over-confidence in their own ability. Uh, what I mean by that is when it comes to their battle with sin, if there's somebody who is sort of drifting in the faith and, and you know, you sort of ask them questions to find out sort of where they're at, they'll say things like, oh, I got this. I can deal with my sin. You know, I just need to figure it out. I just need time away with the Lord to, you know, get my head straight. I, I can do this. There's sort of that overconfidence that they have in their own abilities rather than uh, coming at this with a sense of, of needing God to do a work in their life. Maybe uh, they're being sidetracked by some false teaching and, you know, they become very upset when people ask questions about what they believe or, or even when they challenge them regarding their beliefs. And they say, why is everyone making such a big deal about what I believe? Why are you so worried about my doctrine? And they get defensive because they feel confident that they're okay, that we can never drift. But Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he's quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he reminds us of this. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you're a sinner. Okay, you'll, you'll never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always defend you against every accusation. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Whenever someone accuses us of sin, there's something that rises up within us that says, I'm not like that. You know, there's sort of this mechanism in us because of sin. He goes on and he says, we are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we're sinners, we'll never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering concept of God, of who God is. And that's why he's given us his word, because it shows us who he is in all his glory. And as we spend time in God's word uh, on a daily basis, there's a sense in which we are overwhelmed with the glory of God and the greatness of who he is. But it's also the word James tells us acts as a mirror to show us the true condition of our soul. And if we're drifting, brothers and sisters, God will show us through His Word, and He will call us to come back on track. Now, why do we need to pay attention to this? Why is this so important? Well, look at verses 2 through 4. First thing I want us to see is, is that the judgment of God will come upon those who neglect the gospel that the judgment of God will come upon those who neglect the gospel. Oftentimes, people who are drifting aren't really concerned. They're like, I'm okay. I'm a Christian. You know, there's nothing that's going to happen to me. But, but the writer here tells us of, of something way different than that. He said, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. You see, the author of Hebrews argued that the Old Covenant law, which is given to us by angels, was a valid and a binding covenant, okay? It, it proved to be reliable, is how he puts it in this text. And so every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. There was consequences for the sins of God's people. We see that throughout the Old Testament. But if I might share just a, a few examples with you this morning... Just even from the Exodus in that time period, I mean, Korah and Dathan and Abiram, 
rebelled against Moses and were swallowed up by the earth. The Lord had the earth swallow them up. In Numbers 16.32, uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were priests. Kids, that was like preachers, okay? They were like the pastor. They were men who would know better and should do what God says. But they chose to worship God the way they wanted to worship God, with unholy fire. And it says that they were consumed by fire. And, and even all of Israel, when God brought them into the promised land and sent the spies in to spy out the land, and he said, I will give you that land. And the spies came back, All I mean, 10 of the 12 came back, I should say, and said, we can't do it. There's no way. These people are too big. And they wouldn't trust the Lord. And as a result, God had Israelites wander for 40 years until everyone of a certain age had, had died. And these are just uh, some examples of uh, those who disobeyed the Old Covenant were severely punished. And, and if all that is true, the Old Covenant, which is a lesser revelation, a, a lesser salvation, the writer then asks, how shall we escape if we neglect the greater salvation of the New Covenant? Now, brothers and sisters, these words should dispel the common notion that the New Covenant of the New Testament is an easier law than the Old Testament. I know there's people who think that in the Old Testament, God tried to bring, uh, tried to be legalistic, and that didn't work, and so he just decided to love everybody in the New Testament. I, I know that's not what you believe, I, I'm sure, but I know there's people that do that. But even people that hold to that, they need to understand that, first of all, this misunderstands the Old Testament, which does present God as a holy God, but it also presents God as a loving God to Israel, who's patient and compassionate. But more importantly, it denies the point of our passage, which is that the stakes actually go up in the new covenant. You know, there's a greater salvation, and the obligation to receive it in faith is more stringent. I mean, if we think about the New Testament, you know, um, if we think the New Testament represents um, God rejecting judgment and embracing an undiscriminating love for everyone, then we need to read our New Testaments again. I mean, let me read just one passage to you. In Matthew 11, 23 and 24, Jesus is proclaiming woes to the Pharisees. Okay, and he's talking about Capernaum. And then Capernaum is a city he had done a lot of miracles in. And he goes, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You see, Jesus is, is declaring his judgment upon this city for their rejection of him. And so, yes, Jesus is a loving God, but he is also a holy God as well. And if anything, Jesus' presentation of the law of Moses in the Sermon on the Mount shows us the true demands of the law, right? You know, we read the law of do not, kids, I know some of you are learning these, you shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall honor your father or your mother, you shall not covet, you know, there's all these different laws. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And then Jesus just begins to go through the Sermon on the Mount and lay out these different commands of God and shows them 
what the true demands of the law look like. And then Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so those demands are still um, on us today, even in the New Testament. Therefore, the law's condemnation, which was always intended to drive us as sinners to God's grace, is more intense in the light of Christ's coming. And therefore, it's <coughs> urgent for us to attend and to receive and to hold fast the revelation that has come to us in Jesus Christ. Because there will be judgment if we drift away from such a great salvation. But he also says to us at the end of verse 3 and verse 4 that the message is given by God himself. The writer says of this salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit and distributed according to his will. You see, this message demands our attention but it, because it was declared by Christ himself. We've already read that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So Christ brought the gospel. He shared that with his apostles. Then his apostles shared it with others. And that's how the Hebrews heard it. And not only did they hear the gospel message, but it was also proven by the miracles that they did as well. And also by the gifts of the Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us, lest we drift away from it. These words are, are so relevant for our lives today, as much so as they were for the, the, the Hebrew Christians. And we should fear to be separated from the anchor of God's word or to have any other hand on the will of our lives uh, than the captain of our salvation who speaks in the Bible. You see, to drift is to ultimately to invite God's judgment um, on those who will neglect the saving message in Jesus Christ. Hell is undoubtedly full of people who were not actively opposed to Jesus, but who simply drifted into damnation by neglecting to respond to the gospel. And it's these people who the author has in view as we look in these first four verses of chapter 2 of Hebrews. These are people, maybe even who know the truth, even believe the truth, who are well aware of the good news of salvation provided in Jesus Christ, but who are willing or never willing to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. And so they drift on past the call of God into eternal damnation. How, how will you re re respond this morning? Are you drifting this morning? Are you drifting or are you anchored securely in God's Word? There's no other way, brothers and sisters, that we will persevere other than trusting in Him and the grace He gives us through His Word. Let's take just a moment this morning and bow our heads and just, just meditate, just think about the Word that we've heard preached this morning and, uh, and, and pray to the Lord silently accordingly.
Heavenly Father, as we, we come this morning, we, we know that we have an adversary who's like a lion seeking to devour us. Lord, we know that the world is seeking to, to draw us ever farther away from you. Lord, we know that even our hearts can be tempted to be drawn away from you. And so this reality of drifting is, is a very real possibility. But Lord, we thank you that you hold your people secure. Lord, that you have given us your word that we might meditate on it, that we might know you, Lord, and we might pray and worship you, Lord, based upon the things that we see in your word. And so this morning, Father, I pray for us that we would be strengthened in your word. Lord, that it that we would look to Jesus to be our rock, that he is our strong tower that we run to and we are safe. Father, we, we just pray this morning also for those that either may not know you or those, Lord, who are drifting, that you would bring them back, Lord. God, that they would once again know the joy of fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you and we pray these things in your name because you and you alone are our hope. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.